Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you, Father, for spring, for the coming summer. We thank you that the birds are back. We thank you, Lord, just for uh, all that you do, the goodness, Father, and how you bless us and how you remind us that we are just surrounded by life. And Father, it's not the created life of this world that's groaning that we long for. It is the life everlasting that comes to relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for this life. And we thank you for breathing new life into old bodies and, and new life into our old spirits, Father. And, and bringing us to that place of really living again in you and not in the flesh. But Father, we, we still battle the flesh. We still deal with it. These, these bodies, Lord these minds but we ask Father that you will continue to fill us with your spirit more and more that we might take on characteristics of Jesus that we might actually express his nature in the fruit of our lives and Father we pray this morning as we open the word and and study Lord that it would be yet another step of that we pray you'll bless this time together and that your Holy Spirit will teach and speak to us Father in Jesus name Amen well, 1 Kings chapter 6 again this morning 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1 I want to stay here just a little bit longer one more thing I want to look at today 1 Kings chapter 6 verse 1 still in the building of the temple now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord as for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord its length was 60 cubits and its width 20 cubits and its height 30 cubits The porch in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house, and its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits. Also for the house, he made windows with artistic frames. Against the wall of the house, he built stories encompassing the walls of the home around both the nave and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was 5 cubits wide, the middle was 6 cubits wide, the third was 7 cubits wide, and the outside he made offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams would not be inserted in the walls of the house. The house, while it was being built, was built of stone prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. Skip over to chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 15. Speaking more of Hiram's work, Hiram was the hired gun that Solomon brought in from Tyre, half Jew, half Gentile, to work on the building and to design and craft the building of the temple. And it tells us in verse 15 that Hiram fashioned the two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, that'd be 27 feet. And a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of both, that'd be 16 feet in circumference. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on tops, on the tops of the pillars. And the height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were nets of network and twisted threads of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars, and two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals, which were on the top of the pomegranates, so he did for the other capital. 
The capitals on which were the top of the pillars in the porch were of lily design, four cubits. There were capitals on the two pillars even above and close to the round of projection which was beside the network and the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both capitals. Thus he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave and he set up the right pillar and named it Yaquin and he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. On the top of the pillars was lily designed so the work of the pillars was finished. I've said before that the Bible is a picture book. One of the things I enjoy so much about Scripture is when you open it up, it often unfolds just like a picture book. Like those 3D books we used to look at as children. Open them up and the page kind of comes to life. I love those, especially when there were things that you could pull in and out, push up and down and make go. And the Bible is like that. It is not supposed to be a book that is historical wrote, boring to us, dry in its reading. It is a book that pictures other things. In fact, so many of the Older Testament characters and stories and even structures are pictures of greater spiritual truths. And two such structures are the tabernacle and the temple, which paint amazing and marvelous portraits that can serve to establish and strengthen our walk with the Lord. So while bringing us these great theological truths of God, which the Bible does, and accurate historical truths of the people of Israel as they related to God, and the Bible does that too, the Hebrew Scriptures also serve to portray things that were as yet unseen. I want you to think about for a moment and go back. If you were here when we studied the book of Exodus, think this through. And I'm just going to battle the birds and keep going. This is what they do every year. The louder I get, the louder they get. The softer I get, they get soft. And we've, we've tested this, actually. So ignore the foolish birds. In the book of Exodus, we read about the construction of the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 25 through 30, and then picking up again in chapter 36 through 40, that whole section is all about the construction of the tabernacle. The temple just gets a couple of chapters in 1 Kings and a couple of chapters in 1st or 2nd Chronicles. The tabernacle, the tabernacle gets several chapters. A whole lot more is focused on that. Why? Because the tabernacle in and of itself portrays Jesus Christ in every aspect. I'm going to run you through some things just by way of reminder for those of you who have heard this and maybe something new for those of you who have not. But I also encourage you to go back and study the tabernacle if you've never done it. It is one of the most amazing studies that you'll ever have in the Word. And you can go to the website and follow it through because all those teachings are there. And we talked about the altar of sacrifice. I told you, they just go nuts. Hey! Wanna knock that off? <laughs> you know what's fun is to hear this on tape later on. You know. Like you know, is Rick talking? I don't know if he can't really hear that. The altar of sacrifice in front of the tabernacle. It portrays the cross. Because the cross is the altar, the ultimate altar of sacrifice is Jesus. That one's an obvious one. How about the bronze laver, where the priests would wash, and where the, even the sacrifices themselves would be washed? It's a picture of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. The lampstand, when you come into the holy place, the lampstand was always on the left side. Seven lamps on top of the lampstand. What did that portray? The Holy Spirit. In fact, in the book of Revelation, there's, it talks about the seven lamps on the lampstand and the seven spirits of God. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, 
lampstands. And it's a powerful picture. The light of the lampstand, like the light of the Spirit in our lives. The table of showbread on the other side of the holy place, across from the lampstand. What did Jesus call himself? I am the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And so the table of showbread set up ahead of time. Why would God do that? If not painting a picture for us to see clearly. The altar of incense. Incense always in the Old Testament is a picture of prayer. And so the altar of incense is a picture of Jesus, our great intercessor, who stands even today praying for us as we pray. And re-expressing our words when we don't even know what to say. He knows what to say. And He hears our hearts and He translates and He intercesses, intercedes for us. Well, if you go further in, obviously there's the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. And the Ark of the Covenant by itself is a great picture of Jesus. It was made of acacia wood, that desert wood that speaks so much of Jesus' humanity. Jesus grew up like a tender shoot out of the desert. And that acacia wood, by the way, was also the thorniest wood and is most likely the wood they used for the crown of thorns that was wrapped around Jesus' head. The same wood that built the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was covered all around, inside and out, with gold. Speaking of the deity of Christ, gold always speaks of deity when you see it written about in the Old Testament. And even the cherubim on the mercy seat on top foreshadows the exact placement of the two angels who would sit in the tomb when Mary and the other women came and saw that Jesus was not there. The angels are positioned there just like the top of the mercy seat. It's an amazing picture. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three specific things the Hebrew writer tells us were in there at one time. The law. Jesus was able to, unlike any of us, keep the law inside himself. To keep it perfectly. He was the law incarnate, and so he could hold it. He says, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, Psalm 40, verse 7. Inside the Ark of the Covenant also was the jar of manna, reminding us once again of the manna that came down from heaven. And Jesus said that your fathers ate that manna in the wilderness, and they died. But if anyone eats of me the bread of life, you'll live forever. That jar of manna reminding us again that Jesus was the bread of life. And one other thing was inside the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron's staff that budded. A dead wooden stick brought back to life, speaking of resurrection. God is painting a picture that someday people would be able to open up the word and see and realize Jesus was never an afterthought. It wasn't, oh no, things didn't go right the first time, so I'm going to have to go down there and fix things. I'm going to have to work things out. No, from the very beginning, in fact, the Bible tells us he was the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. So God had this whole thing planned out and he gives us this picture to speak of all these things. Even the veil and the curtains in the tabernacle speak of Jesus Christ. They were sewn together with four colors that speak of his person and his work. And each of these four colors is so amazing correspond to each one of the four Gospels if you read them and look at them closely. The color blue Speaking of the heavens, again, the deity of Jesus. The color purple, speaking of his kingly royalty. The scarlet red, speaking of sacrificial suffering. And finally, the lily linen white, speaking of Jesus' perfect righteousness. God was intentional in the construction of the tabernacle 
It's the layout of the furnishings as we talked about last week. If you looked overhead straight down and could take the roof sections off of the tabernacle, you would see the layout was in the perfect shape of a cross. And if we could do a flyby in an airplane, say a thousand feet, five thousand feet, over the camp of Israel as they were camped out, some of you Bible students know this, they were camped perpendicular to the tabernacle, and the size of each one of the four camps of the twelve tribes of Israel was such that when God looked down on Israel, he would see a big mass the human cross. The whole thing was designed ahead of time so that we would look back later and see Jesus was intended by the Father from the very beginning. And what does the Bible tell us in John chapter 1 verse 14? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt, skenuo in the Greek is tabernacles. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And so the tabernacle is this amazing portrait of the person of Jesus Christ. So the Bible is a picture book. Now we, in the last week or so, have been looking at the temple. So then you may ask, well then is the temple also a picture of Jesus? And that's where we have to say not so fast. The tabernacle in its beauty, in its simplicity, speaks in every way, shape, and form of Jesus Christ. The temple... Only in one way. The temple speaks of Jesus only in his death. Jesus said in John 19.21, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple, of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The one time in scripture when Jesus is compared to the temple is when he is in, listen to this, complete identification with our humanity. It's the one time. Otherwise, he's compared to the tabernacle. But the one time, he is in complete identification with our humanity. What exactly does that mean? It means the following. Jesus is pictured in the tabernacle, but the temple is actually a more fascinating picture of us. Of you and of me. In our human state. Constructed of earthly things. And made to hold something glorious, we are a picture of the temple. So before we leave the temple complex in our walk through the Bible, I'd like to draw your attention in some interesting ways as to how we the church are exemplified in the temple. And to do that, I want you to turn over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. We go to the New Testament commentary of the Old Testament, Ephesians chapter 2. And join in with the writings and teachings of the Apostle Paul as he begins in about verse 19. Ephesians 2.19 By the way, I want to mention something to you as you're turning over there. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2 especially, God talks about, or Paul talks about, how, he, how the Lord made peace between the two men. How he made peace between the Jew and the Gentile, bringing them together to make one man, which is the church. Something I was asked in an email, and I don't believe David and Denise are here this service. I think they'll, they'll be here next service. But um, Denise Walton sent me an email, and she was asking, 
what about the Jewish people? Are they saved because they're Jewish? And there's a lot of confusion in Christianity about that, especially for those who, like me, are very pro-Israel and very supportive of the Jewish people and believe that God is not through with the Jew, that he still has a plan for Israel. So what's the deal? Do they just get to be saved because they're Jewish? And I don't believe they will. I believe they will be saved. But not because they're Jewish. Any more than you and I will be saved because we're Christians. Going into McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. You know, any more than going to church makes you a Christian. So what is it with the Jewish people? And, and in a nutshell, very quickly, Zechariah says, I'm going to bring them through the fire and one third of them will be saved. Which means the time is coming when Israel is going to go through a holocaust unlike anything they have ever seen. And one third will come out the other side. But that one third will look on him who has been pierced. And they will mourn for him and believe. You see, Jesus said very clearly, and you cannot miss this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So no one gets saved because of who they are or what their lineage or heritage is. We only are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe all Israel will be saved. All Israel that is left who have gone through that tribulation period, that one-third who are left, will believe in Jesus and therefore will be saved. And we can talk more about that, but I just wanted to kind of point that out. However, now Paul is going on to talk about the church and talk about you and talk about me. In verse 19 he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul is now drawing a clear visual parallel between the church and the temple. Let me give you a few dots to connect here. Number one, we have, like the temple itself, we have a sound foundation. We have a sound foundation. Listen again to verse 20. We have been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Millions of people across the 374 years of the first temple's existence, millions literally would stand on that foundation of the temple mount. But Solomon had to build up and strengthen. Mount Moriah, where the temple mount sits, was a mountain itself. It wasn't flat on the top. And so they had to flatten it and shore it up and build retaining walls. And literally countless millions would stand on that foundation. And Solomon never once worried about it caving in. Because he knew it was secure. Because as we talked about, those 40 to 100 ton stones, some of them as long as 100 feet long, that would hold up, and it was rock solid. And millions more would visit the same place in the era of the second temple across nearly 600 years, and it would not cave in. And even today, you can stand on the temple mount, and it doesn't cave in. Although some of the outer sections are bulging because the Islamic mosques are being built underground and they're digging out and they're beginning to undermine that foundation. But our foundation is as solid as the temple ever was. And what does Paul say our foundation is? Well, first he says it's the apostles and the prophets. We stand on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Well, what does that mean? What do we have from the apostles and the prophets? We have the Word. We have the Word. 
And the word is a very sound and solid foundation. In fact, Jewish people, along with early Christians, used this phrase often. They would say Moses and the prophets when they were talking about Scripture. They would read or, or use that phrase again and again, speaking of the word. Luke chapter 16, verse 29. In a fascinating parable where Jesus opens the door a little bit for us to see more of what Hades was like, what Sheol was like, he talks about a rich man and a poor man. The poor man's name was Lazarus. And when they both died, the rich man went to the torment side of Hades and, and the poor man went to Abraham's bosom on the paradise side and there was a great gulf in between. And Jesus is describing this in the parable. And he says in this, the, the, the rich man asked for some help. Could, could you send somebody back? Could you send Lazarus back to, to the world for me? Raise him from the dead to go warn my fathers and my brothers. And Abraham says this, Jesus speaking, Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now when Jesus told this parable, Moses and the prophets had long been dead. But what he's saying is they have the word. He goes on to say that the rich man, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Now Jesus was hinting there, even when I rise from the dead, they're not going to believe. Even though they have Moses and the prophets, even though they have the tabernacle, they have that amazing picture, they have so many things they could look to that pointed to coming Messiah, and they could see it all in me, even though they've got the word, they're not going to believe, though I rise from the dead. And I wonder, and I'm going to say this and just hear me on this for a moment, I wonder when people chase after miraculous things today, if Jesus wouldn't say the same thing to us as Americans. If you're not going to believe my word, miracles are not going to change your mind. If you're not going to believe what I've already said and given to you, no amount of, of raising from the dead, no amount of the miraculous, no amount of healings is going to change anybody's mind. Brian Young, one of our missionaries, has said that this may be one reason why we don't see the kind of miraculous things in America that is seen in third world countries. And we have a tendency to, to rail on ourselves and say, well, the reason we don't see the miraculous in America as much is because we don't have faith. Maybe part of the reason we don't see as much miraculous here is because God doesn't need to do it as much here. Because we have the freedom to worship. We have the freedom to be in the Word. To know what He wants of us. To be clear on these things. Now, gang, don't get me wrong, because I have witnessed miraculous things. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to heal in and among us here today. I believe when we pray and ask for healing that God hears and He responds to it. But listen to me on this. God doesn't do miracles for the sake of doing miracles. The Holy Spirit is not a circus act sideshow. For people to pay their ticket and show up and see if something exciting is going to happen that day. That is not how God works. He's not playing games with us. God is all about the salvation of human souls. Saving our lives. And I believe He would say to us today, if you don't believe my word, no amount of miracles is going to change your mind. You have Moses 
Jihad the Slavists. And it is a solid, solid foundation. In Luke 24, 27, after his resurrection, Jesus runs into the two gentlemen on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking with them, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Luke chapter 24, a bit later, in verse 44, he said to the apostles, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that of all things which were written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And Acts 2.42 tells us very simply what the church was about then and what I believe the church needs to be about now. Fellowship. Actually, let me get this in order. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The apostles' teaching. Getting the word is so foundational. Why? Why is it so foundational to us? Because the word, gang, and hear this, the word is not subject to the winds of culture. God's word is not subject to the changing tide of the church, to what's new, to what's exciting, to what's the latest buzz. God's word doesn't change. We do. Look across 2,000 years of church and look at where the church's focus has been and it's all over the map. And yet the whole time, God's word has never changed. You know what I love about the Dead Sea Scrolls? When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they got the book of Isaiah. It was one of the books that was completely intact, which blew everybody away. And when they finally figured out how to open it up and read it, they went and checked it. And the difference between the book of Isaiah, written thousands of years ago, and the book of Isaiah that we have today, was negligible. A couple of spelling errors. The word doesn't change. We do. That's why we need the Word, and that's why it is such a sound foundation for us. When I am uncertain, when I'm unstable, which Cheryl can tell you happens a lot, when I'm unable to discern which way I'm supposed to turn, God, what am I supposed to do in this situation or that situation? How do I handle what's coming at me right now when I don't know what to do? I have a firm, unwavering foundation on which I can stand. Come on, Rick. I mean, really? When you got life problems, you open up your Bible? Yeah. Because it is sound. And it is truth unchanging. The apostles and the prophets, who, by the way, spoke and wrote by the Holy Spirit of the living God. That's why it's so sad. It wasn't just that some guys had some great ideas. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.20, Know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the Bible we hold in our hands. You believe that, Rick? I truly do. Now, I want to clarify something, and this is really important. It's all really important. It's been said that the Bridge Christian Fellowship is a teaching church. And I think that's misleading. Now, some might be surprised. You might think, oh, wait, isn't that what you would call it, Rick? I don't, I don't know that I would, and I've really been thinking about this lately. Granted, as a pastor, the Lord's primary call on my life is teaching. It's to make sure that we are in the Word. And I do believe the church is sorely lacking in true Bible study and biblical teaching. And as long as I'm around, we will continue chapter by chapter, verse by verse, week in, week out, in the Word until Jesus comes. That's my promise to you. And the reason is, as Peter said in 2 Peter 1, verse 12, he says, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, 
and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Part of why we come together and open the word every Sunday, every Wednesday, and continually throughout the week is to be stirred up by way of reminder. Oh yeah, that's, that's God's will for us. Oh yeah, the Lord really does love me. Now you think we would get that, but how often do you wonder if God's really active in your life? And then you open the Word and you're like, Hi God, yeah, I guess He really is. I guess this really is for me. But hear me on this, if we're a teaching church only, then we better ramp up the teaching times like this far more often than two hours a week. For anyone who would say we teach too much, I defy you to say that we teach too much when we are here an hour on Sunday morning and an hour on Wednesday night. I'm sorry, that's not too much. In fact, it's not even close to enough. I want to tell you something else here with this, though, that might surprise you. I'm not a student. I know some of you think that I am because of the teaching, because of the amount of time I spend studying the Word and, and bringing these things to you. But ask my wife, who started studying Hebrew several months ago, and we were going to study it together, and I was going to learn Hebrew, and she's learned a bunch of Hebrew. You know how much I've learned? None! With the exception of what I've learned in my studies... Because I'm not a student. I'm just not motivated to sit down there and learn Hebrew. I'd like to. Sounds like a great idea. Until I crack the books and then I'm going, what's on TV? (laughs) Something else I can do. I'm so easily distracted. Taekwondo. Cheryl started Taekwondo and she's been trying to talk me into doing it. So I went down there and this is a while ago. I went down and had one or two lessons. And, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm just not into it. Why not? You don't like to work out? I love to work out. I don't like to study. I don't like the memorization and having to remember all that stuff. It's like this morning with the song. You know, I, mean, I can only take so much. I'm not a student. I never was a student. I was the high school kid who scooted by, who figured out ways around things so that I could do the minimum work and get the grades I needed to get on with what I needed to do. But I wasn't the kid at home going, cracking the books and just going, oh, I just love to study. I don't. I'm not a student. But I'll tell you something. During the week, my absolute favorite time of worship is when I open the Word and study. Because it's not study for me. It's not study. Hayden is a lot like me. Hayden hates reading time. Every night he's supposed to read for an hour. My 11-year-old son. And every night we have the same argument. And I'm telling you, every night. Do I have to? Yes, one hour, Hayden. He goes downstairs and 10 minutes later he's back upstairs getting a drink of water. And then five minutes after that he's back upstairs checking his backpack. I mean, he uses whatever he can come up with so that he doesn't have to spend that time reading. But say, hey... Read an hour and I will come down and read with you for a half an hour. And he is totally in. He hates reading time by himself. He absolutely loves reading time when I go down and read. Or Cheryl does. Or his sister does. Or his brother does. He loves it. Why? What's the difference? One is about study. The other is about relationship. And communion. And being with the other person. I have really struggled with how to get this across, but it's absolutely key when we're studying, quote-unquote, the Word together. If the Word never gets from our head to our heart, then our foundation will not be secure. We'll become dry and cracked, rocky religion, like we talked about the temple last week. The temple will become, this temple will become a religious place. 
if the word gets into my head, but never down to my heart. When we come to times like these of teaching, I want to ask you, how do you approach it? How do you approach Bible study times? Do you come to fill up a notebook with interesting factoids and pieces of the puzzle? Oh, that's cool. Oh, I kind of like that. Okay, I'll try to remember that date. Circle that. Underline this. Write that in. Or are you coming to sit at Jesus' feet and to hear His voice? To be in conversation with Him. Listen, this is not college. This is communion. And that's where I take issue with saying that we're a teaching church. Yes, we teach. Yes, the Word is incredibly important. But I'll tell you what, if it's only about teaching and taking it in as students, we will miss the whole point, the whole foundation of the apostles and the prophets on which we stand is about relationship with the living God. It is not about information download. It is about intimate dialogue. I've shared on Wednesday nights many times, during these teaching times, you should be in conversation with God the whole time. And if the Lord takes you off on a tangent, and you and the Holy Spirit are over here, and you have no idea what I'm saying up here, fantastic. Great. Catch up later. It's about relationship. My heart is that our attitude shouldn't change from the moment worship begins through all of our prayers, through taking communion, through being in the Word. It should be the same. Worshiping in the Word. Talking with the Lord. Dialoguing. Being in intimate contact with Him. And let me ask you one more question about this before moving on. If you knew Jesus was going to be our special guest teacher this Wednesday night, would you come? Guess what? He is. Yes. We have a sound foundation in the Word, but listen, that foundation is buttressed, strengthened, and supported by, number two, a strong Savior. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Paul says. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. You remember the cornerstone we talked about last week, rejected by the builders, but it became the actual cornerstone, and He is strong. And sometimes when we struggle and waver and doubt, I wonder if we realize the amount of strength that is truly available to us in the spirit of Christ Jesus. Listen to this verse. Romans chapter 8 verse 10 says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. When we talk about receiving the Holy Spirit of Christ and having a spirit within us, it's the same spirit, gang, that raised Jesus from the dead. Is that not power? Is that awesome? I mean, and, and when we waver, we oh, I just don't know if I can handle life. You have the Spirit of Christ that raised Him up out of the grave. Now, the question has been asked, well, who really raised Jesus from the dead? Because the Bible seems to say some different things about it. Actually, you're right, it does. Galatians 1, verse 1 says, The Father raised Jesus from the dead. By His power. John chapter 2 verse 19 through 21 which we read a little bit earlier Jesus said destroy this temple and I will raise it up the son raised himself from the dead (laughs) and of course what we just read in Romans 8 verse 10 and 11 the spirit raised Jesus from the dead so who raised Jesus from the dead? God did Father, Son, Holy Spirit all three all three aspects of our triune God 
were part of the raising of Jesus from the dead. And all three aspects of our triune God are present in His Spirit in you if you walk in Jesus Christ. That is power. That is strength. When we talk about the cornerstone, He is the stone that is immovable. Psalm 62 verse 7 On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. So what's the problem? Well Isaiah says in Isaiah 17 verse 10 You've forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. That's when I get shaky. That's when I forget that I stand on the rock who is Jesus Christ raised by the Father, raised by the Son Himself, and raised by the Spirit. And that power and that strength are available to me today. Let me just stir you up by way of reminder this morning. That we, the temple, have a sound foundation supported by a strong Savior, and we need it. Because we are still rough and jagged. Number three, we are stones for shaping. We are stones for shaping. Verse 21, Paul says, In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And we talked about this a couple times last week, that as the stones were crafted and shaped and put together in the quarry, then they were brought up and they slid quietly and silently without hammer, axe, or chisel into place in the temple. You might say, okay, well I got that. Listen, although the foundation is established, we are a work in progress. We are a work in progress. We are not solid, we're not firm, we are not smooth stones. In fact, Paul says we're being fitted and we're growing and expanding. What kind of stones grow and expand? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's the cool dynamic of this temple. Of the temple that we are, if you don't like how it looks right now, stick around, we're changing. You don't like this church fellowship right now? Hang around a bit, because God's growing us. And we are not today what we will be tomorrow. And we will not be tomorrow what we're going to be the day after that. We're going to be better and better and better. And there will be more glory here, and there will be more of His Spirit here, because we're growing. We're living stones. We are not, listen to me, not set in our ways. We're not stuck. We are in a dynamic process of growth that is amazing. And gang, listen, when we think about that quarry example, I I was processing this more during the week. That example of the quarry, we often apply it to like hard times. The quarry is the hard times of life, getting chipped on and, you know, having a rough time, a rough go of life, but we'll be that temple someday. Listen, you might be sitting next to a chisel or a hammer right now. And one of the saddest things to me about the American church is when things go rough in church, we leave and go find another one. And God's saying, oh, well, okay, well, I'm going to have to find a chisel at your new church. I'm going to have to go look for another hammer because you left that one behind. And that one was working really well. You didn't know it because you were so uncomfortable. But I was working on you. And to me, that's the value of being brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, I annoy you sometimes. I know that. 
You annoy me too. Yeah, it's hard sometimes. But we look at, at the quarry example and say, oh man, when life is rough, well forget about life for a second. How about just relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? It's not going to be perfect. We're all sinners. But God can take that imperfection and use it as instruments of His work for living stones to consider and to continue working on us. Chiseling, shaping, buffing, smoothing. And we say, well, He disappointed me, Chip. She let me down, scrape. They don't understand me, rub, file. All the while the temple is being built. And so James says in James 5.8, Be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke of the Lord. Guys like Jeremiah, who preached his whole entire life without a single convert who wrote the book of Lamentations. There's a cheery book for you. And Peter says, take them, or James says, take them as examples. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, and being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. So don't miss the blessing of the shaping. It's what God is doing among us. And it might not be comfortable, and it might really tick you off, but God is shaping you and shaping others through you so we'll be better fitted for the temple. By the way, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible, which is why Paul ends the example of the temple with these words, number four on our list, a secure spirit, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. One of my favorite passages of scripture, 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 10, tells us that it happened when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord in the same way we the temple are the place of the Spirit of God. The place where God chooses to abide. And we are promised that abiding spirit. Okay, we know that. We get that. Something that was just kind of an aha moment for me, and I shared this Wednesday night. I was praying for patience this week. I know. That's what we all say, idiot. (laughs) You don't know what you're asking for. But here's what hit me. I was asking God for a fruit of the Spirit, and the Lord said, how about just asking for the Spirit? Because if you ask for the Spirit, the fruit's going to come. You can't have the Holy Spirit of the living God in your life and not become more patient. And not become more self-controlled. And not become more loving or joyful or kind. That's how it works. And we spend a lot of our time as Christians, don't we, saying, Oh Lord, could you just make me more self-controlled? That's what I'm praying for. I need more more gentleness in my life. Could you make me more faithful, Lord? And we're praying for fruit. And as Les said this last week, an apple tree doesn't sit there and think, Okay... Lord, give me apples. You know, help me grow apples, and then a pear pops out. Oh, that's not what I was asking for. An apple tree grows apples because that's its nature. And if my nature is overcome by the Holy Spirit of the Living God, guess what? 
The fruit of the Spirit is going to grow. So I learned something this week when the Lord said, Rick, back it off of the fruit and start asking for my Spirit and more of my Spirit. And the fruit will take care of itself. There is security, by the way, in the presence of the Spirit of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.21 that he who establishes us with you in Christ and appointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. What does that mean? It means you can know that you're saved. How do I know I'm saved? Because the Spirit tells me I am. Because I have no question, no doubt. He's in my heart as a pledge. Paul takes it a step further in Ephesians 4.30. He says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You have the seal of the Holy Spirit. How does God know who are His own? He sees the Spirit on you. It's like having a mark, a precious mark, an interactive mark in our lives. And God looks at us and He sees not flailing sinners, but He sees people anointed by His Holy Spirit. And we are sealed for our salvation. The very presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives secures our salvation like a badge of honor, so wear Him well. All in all, we have that solid foundation, sound foundation, supported by a strong Savior. We are stones for shaping, secured by the Holy Spirit, we the temple. And the temple is a picture of us. There's one last thing in the temple I want you to see before we go this morning. 1 Kings chapter 7. In verse 21 says he set up the pillars at the porch of the nave. He set up the right pillar and named it Yachin. He set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. On the top of the pillars was lily designed, so the work of the pillars was finished. Of all the stones and all the angles and all the furnishings in the temple, only two things got named. These two pillars. Yachin and Boaz, which is a little odd. Why not have names for everything in the temple? The roof has a name, you know? The the floor coverings have a name. Why not name everything? Just the two pillars, Yachin and Boaz. So we should pause and pay attention to what they mean. Yachin means Yahweh shall establish. It's two Hebrew words, Yah, Yahweh, and Kun, which means established. Established by God. And Boaz means, and it is strength. Yahweh shall establish. In it is strength. Now, I was a little disappointed, I'll tell you, because I was hoping that Boaz would be in him is strength. That was the definition I was looking for. God establishes because in him is strength. But that's not what the pillars said. The names of the pillars said, God establishes and in it is strength. In what is strength? In the temple. There is strength in the temple because God establishes it. Yahweh establishes strength in the temple. And if in fact we are truly the temple of the living God, as the the New Testament says again and again that we are, then gang, we are established by God Himself with a strength that is beyond ourselves. There is strength in this temple. Colossians 2 verse 6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ as the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, and overflowing with gratitude. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Feeling weak? Feeling wobbly? 
Feeling unstable? Yahweh establishes strength in we, the temple. And by the way, there's an awesome promise that has to do with these two pillars, Yaquin and Boaz, in the temple. Jesus refers back to them when he speaks to John in the Revelation and he says these following words, Revelation 3.11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. Pillars in the temple, established by God and filled with his strength. We the temple. Let's bow together. Lord, we see again an amazing portrait. A picture of who we are. A picture of what you've done. Of how you have filled us. Of how you support us. Of how you establish and strengthen us. And once again, we can only but say, Praise the God of the heavens. Praise our Father for how you work and for what you do. Father, we pray that as you fit us together as a temple, we pray that you'll do whatever you want to do. Whatever you need to do, however you need to shape us, Lord, however you need to chip us and round off the hard edges, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will fill us so that we can be faithful. We pray your Spirit will fill us so that we will be fruitful. And we ask only, Lord Jesus, that you will always be the authority over our life. In Jesus we pray. Amen.